0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. For some people, there is no single defining moment in their lives. For Hugh Thompson, a funeral director from Stone Mountain, Georgia, there was. Thompson was only in his mid-20s when the moment came, and it was a moment that would define him for good and bad for the rest of his life. It was 1968, Thompson was in the U.S. Army, and not surprisingly, he was stationed in Vietnam, and on March 16, 1968, he was looking for the enemy from a helicopter. What he found was Americans killing non-combatants in an area where poor peasants mostly farmed rice. Thompson had stumbled onto what would become known as the My Lai Massacre. He talked about it with the BBC in 1989.
1: I remember thought going through my mind. How, how did these people get in a ditch? And I finally thought about the... Uh, Uh, Nazis, I guess, and marching everybody down to the ditch and blowing them away. Here we are, supposed to be the good guys in the white hats. It upset me.
0: Hugh Thompson had several choices in that moment. He could say nothing to his fellow Americans, he could join in with the soldiers on the ground, or he could try to stop them. But given our biology and the culture that has been built on top of it, trying to stop fellow Americans was going to be pretty tough.
2: We are primates. We are mammals. And like a whole lot of them, we are very, very hardwired to divide the world into us's and them's.
0: Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University.
2: We process us, them, in-group, out-group. Uh, categorizations in under a hundred milliseconds in our brains, neuroimaging studies. There are hormones that exacerbate the contrast between us being nice to uses and being <laughs> very antisocial to them's. It's incredibly hardwired and I would venture to say, unless you're the, the Dalai Lama and his friends, basically all of us carry in us a Capacity to make rapid us them distinctions and to not be all that nice to them.
0: So, in this moment when Thompson faced a choice, the question was who, in his mind, was an us and who was a them.
2: Hugh Thompson, a lifetime of, you know, American nationalist sort of inculcation as to who is an us.
1: As long as others will challenge America's security and test the dearness of our beliefs with fire and steel then we must stand or see the promise
2: of two centuries trump and at a critical moment he shifted who was in us and us were the surviving civilians in milai who he protected um at great personal risk and them were his fellow american soldiers who were being savage
1: when i did instruct my crew my crew chief and gunner you know to open up on them if they open up on any more civilians i don't know i don't know how it felt if they would have opened up on them but that particular day i wouldn't have given it a second thought it's, they were the enemy at that time i guess they were damn sure the enemy to the people on the ground
0: Thompson confronted Lieutenant William Callie, who was in command, about what he and his men were doing. Callie would later be court-martialed and convicted of murder. For the rest of his life, Thompson was rewarded and derided for what he did in March of 1968, and he was plagued until he died by what he had seen.
2: In some ways, he is like a great logical example of how we humans work. In some ways, he's just mind-bogglingly unique.
0: Robert Sapolsky has spent decades trying to figure out why we act the way we do and where the sorts of profound decisions that Thompson made come from. Sapolsky is the author of Behave, the biology of humans at our best and worst. And as part of his odyssey towards understanding us at our best and our worst, he has spent more than 30 years studying our relatives, baboons and chimps in Africa.
2: You know, you study those sorts of folks for a while and to state something idiotically obvious, uh, humans are kind of interesting and complicated and counterintuitive and contradictory in ways that leave other animals out there open-mouthed at the the bizarrities of it we do things no other animal would do we we choose not to pass on copies of our genes and join some celibate sect of some sort. We we adopt somebody from the other side of the planet. We hold the door open for strangers in a foreign place where we're never going to interact with them again, so there's no chance that they're going to be able to reciprocate. Mm -hmm. We're just a weird species in that regard. And in lots of ways, what's weirdest about it is... We simultaneously have absolutely unprecedented capacities for being miserably violent to each other and unprecedented capacities for being compassionate and altruistic and cooperative. And it's just so damn interesting trying to make sense of how we can incorporate these extremes and how we could manage all those ambiguous behaviors somewhere in between (laughs) – and how much all of it is Mm context-dependent. One person's freedom fighter is another's terrorist. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, speaking of context, you write in your book about the many layers that are involved when you make any decision, right? There's the moment right before you make it, right before, let's say, you pull a trigger or you punch somebody or whatever it is. Um, There's the life that you had growing up, and then there's even further back, like the lives of your ancestors, the things that shaped your genes. How do you think we might think, maybe incorrectly, about an action, like a a pulling of the trigger or punching a person, and how that action actually comes about?
2: When you look at the fact that, you know, our behavior is the product of our brains, we are nothing more or less than that collection of brain cells up there and their interactions, and the fact that how you behave will be influenced by subliminal sensory cues that you were exposed to a minute ago. Mm -hmm. For example, put somebody in a room with smelly garbage and they become more socially conservative on questionnaires. Mm. You're influenced by the hormone levels that were in your bloodstream over the previous two days, raise somebody's testosterone levels, and they're more likely to interpret a face with a neutral expression on it as having a threatening one. Mm. We're being influenced by... Adolescence, when we wired up our frontal cortex finally, by our childhood, by our fetal life, our fetal environment, get exposed to a lot of stress hormones as a fetus, thanks to mom having been stressed during pregnancy. And on the average, you're going to have a larger version of a part of the brain called the amygdala that's got to do with aggression and perceiving things as threatening or not. And then you're often running with genes, and then it turns out the cultures your ancestors invented centuries ago, are you collectivist, are you individualist, mm-hmm. are you a hunter-gatherer, or are you a pastoralist? Those things play out as to how you're being raised within minutes of birth. And then, you know, just to finish the picture, we've got to put in uh, consideration of the sort of species we've evolved to be. In other words, you are up the creek... If you think you can explain our best, worst, in-between behaviors with here is the part of the brain that explains everything, here is the gene, the hormone, the childhood experience, the evolutionary mechanism, you got to put them all together. And what comes out the other end is a picture of us being profoundly biologically determined organisms.
0: Um, One of the things that really fascinates me and that you write about to some degree, is uh, Twin Studies. And they have been this very powerful way of understanding the impact of genetics and trying as much as we can, you know, to isolate these issues of genetics and culture. Um, And you write that Twin Studies have shown that genetics play a major role in everything from IQ to schizophrenia, depression, autism, alcoholism, extroversion, agreeableness, and like the list goes on. That seems to me to speak a lot to the power of whatever's in your body when you're born. And and even though we pay so much attention and spend so much money and put so much thought into what happens after you're born, if twins who are separated at birth can have all those things, you know, extroversion and autism, they can have all those things in common. I I don't know. It seems like a lot's hardwired. How does it seem to you?
2: Okay. I'm actually... A, a very cranky skeptic of an awful lot of what has come out of this field term behavior genetics, both from twin studies or adoption studies or, as you said, like the the Super Bowl in the whole field, identical twins adopted right. early in life right. and then right. reunited. So there's lots of issues that come up here. Okay, so first off, some of these links to genetics to heritability um, are in fact quite strong. Probably introversion, extroversion is the biggest one out there. Mm. So are we genetically determined to be introverted or extroverted? What you see in some cases is what would be an indirect effect. A large percentage of the introversion, extroversion is in fact carried genetically by height. Tall people are treated better. Tall people are considered more attractive, tall people become more confident and extroverted. Mm. It turns out a huge percentage of that introversion-extroversion linkage to genes, in fact, is mediated by a much more mundane thing. Oh, genes have something to do with, like, how long your leg bones are going to grow. Um, So that is the first confound. Next one is that there's very little out there when it comes to behavior that remotely can qualify as genetic determinism. Genes are not about inevitability, they're about vulnerabilities, they're about potentials, for example. One gene related to a really like critical neurotransmitter system in the brain comes in two different flavors and a ton of lab work had suggested if you had one of the two variants, you were going to be more prone towards antisocial violent behavior. Hmm. Whoa. Lots of lab studies, rats, monkeys suggesting that mechanisms worked out, totally beautiful science. So classic study followed thousands of subjects from birth up to age 25 or so, and their genetics, all of that. And the question becomes, at age 25, if you had that genetic variant, were you more likely to have a history of violent antisocial behavior? And the answer was yes, yes, absolutely, if and only if you were abused as a child. In other words, in the absence of that environmental Sort of interactive effect, having that gene had no Didn't impact matter. whatsoever. it's not the gene, it's the gene in a particular environment. um probably the biggest problem that plagues both twin studies but especially adoption studies is adoption studies in particular is predicated on the notion that, okay, you get a kid and you adopt them away two seconds after they're born. Mm -hmm. And instead of growing up in the middle of the Amazon, they grow up in the Gobi Desert. And their adoptive parents, all they get from them is environment. Mm -hmm. And their biological parents, all they got from them was genes, Mm -hmm. because after all, they were adopted away within seconds of birth. And thus, if you see more similarities to the biological parents, you could then attribute it to genes, case closed. Right. And what has completely done in that whole <clears throat> assumption is the fact that environment doesn't begin at birth. Mm. You've just spent nine very intimate mm-hmm. months sharing right. your mother's circulation, your mother's sensory experiences in lots of cases. And it turns out that matters enormously. Adult risk of... Metabolic syndrome, obesity, hypertension, clinical depression, schizophrenia all of those are significantly modulated mm-hmm. by prenatal environment, right. in other words, like all sorts of things that have been attributed to genes instead you know could be prenatal environment, and some of those effects have now been shown to in fact have been spuriously attributed to genes right. so at mm. the end of the day i'm, I'm less impressed with genes than many people are because they don't make any sense and they're not meaningful outside the context of the environment in which they occur.
0: Right. And this notion that there's a bucket, this sort of genetic bucket and the cultural bucket, it sounds like not at all. They're just, there's so much porousness between those buckets that you can't can't separate one from the other. Exactly. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Sapolsky, a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. He's the author of "Behave: The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst." So, we've talked about culture. We've talked about genetics. If both of those have tremendous power, very often beyond your control, you you don't uh, change the culture. You're you grow up in, usually, you obviously cannot control your genetics. What does that say to you about free will and our ability (laughs) to shape our own lives?
2: Well, if you spend enough time looking at how we are shaped by everything from a subliminal sensory stimulus 10 seconds ago to why humans evolved the way they are rather than being chimps or bonobos and everything in between. You spend enough time with that. And, you know, that concept of free will starts seeming mighty suspect. Mm -hmm. One can argue till the cows come home with certain branches of philosophers. But in terms of that, I come out as what's termed a hard determinist. I don't think there's a shred of free will out there. Um, I think free will is what we call the biology that hasn't been uncovered yet. And when you look at the history of our knowledge about what biology has to do with behavior, we've spent the last, I don't know, couple of centuries or so over and over repeating the same phrase, which is, whoa, I had no idea that sort of biology had anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. Whoa, I had no idea that an epileptic seizure is a disease rather than someone who's been consorting with Satan. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had no idea circa 1950s that a child having a lot of trouble learning to read rather than being lazy and unmotivated has the cortical malformations that we now call a learning disability. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the sheer percentage of what we know about the biological shaping of our behavior... 95% of it was discovered in the last half century, 90% of it in the last 25 years, 85% since you woke up this morning kind of thing. (laughs) All that has been happening is this endless march of, oh, I had no idea biology had to do with that. Hmm. And it has already convinced us of that in some of our most fundamental areas. And at the end of the day... Either you could conclude there's no free will whatsoever, and that's my stance, or at least you're going to have to admit there's a lot less free will than there used to be in sort of Western thinking and Western values and judgments, and it's getting squeezed into all sorts of really uninteresting places, and that's just going to keep happening. And maybe down the line, if you want to insist it was free will while you've flossed your upper teeth this morning instead of your lower ones, go for it, be happy. But I think by all logic, again, this notion free will is just the biology we haven't discovered yet.
0: Does that mean you must think then all the time in your own life, you know, am I really choosing to be interested in primates or is this, the, is this something, <laughs> right, that's baked into the cake? Am I really choosing not to eat that cookie or was that already kind of baked into like who I am? I mean, do you think that all the time in your own life?
2: Well, that's the problem. Um, you know, amid, again, I'm totally intellectually comfortable with the notion that there is no free will whatsoever. It's a myth. We are nothing more or less than our biology. At the same time, I haven't the remotest idea how you're supposed to live if you actually started believing that. Right? There's obvious things to do, which is completely revamp how we do criminal justice and education and all sorts of other things like that. But at the end of the day, like, you know, without question, I show that I'm a total hypocrite and have not really incorporated this thinking (laughs) because, like, if I give a lecture and somebody comes up afterward and says, oh, good lecture, I'll say, thanks. I'll say thanks when I'm supposed to say, no, actually, it's this amount due to my having adequate protein levels when I was a fetus and this and this and this and this. My culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, how do you function that way? And on a certain level, if it's going to be hard for us to accept that there's no free will when it comes to judging them and their awful behaviors, um, it's going to be that much harder to accept that it's absolutely just as applicable when it comes to us and our laudable ones.
0: I want to go back to something that you just mentioned, the criminal justice system. So believing what you do, how do you think about this system that's all about choices people make and then how other people obviously choose to punish them or not punish them uh, for for what they did?
2: Well, not not to sound like too much of a hothead here, (laughs) if I haven't already, but let's see, just to sort of state it subtly the criminal justice system makes no sense whatsoever there's there's no souls there's no evil there's no there's no punishment that in and of itself I mean none of this stuff makes sense the the criminal justice system runs on neurobiology that's close to 200 years old literally, in what's called the McNaughton ruling, the difference of knowing between right and wrong, and other than that, for the most part, it's ignored the last 200 years of behavioral science. 25% of the men on death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. And when you damage the frontal cortex, you have somebody who can know the difference between right and wrong, and they still can't regulate their behavior. Mm. And when they do something appalling at that point, invoking evil, it makes as much sense as invoking the notion of evil when a car whose brakes have failed hits somebody.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And in both cases, you don't leave them out on the street being dangerous. But when you put a car in a garage because you can't fix the brakes and it's dangerous, you don't sit there and say justice has been served and this car is not going to get to drive around in the countryside anymore on a sunny day. It's just a mechanical problem. And in a horribly simplified way, we're biological machines. And if it's dehumanizing to turn us into machines in that way, it's a hell of a lot better than demonizing us into having rotten souls when we may just have something screwy with one neurotransmitter system.
0: In some ways, uh, the argument that you make really affects huge swaths of our culture, it seems to me. Like, I think about the entire section of a bookstore, right, that's designed to help you succeed more in life. So that, you know, books to help you find love, books to help you succeed at work, books to help you do well in school, uh, to make friends better. Um, But in some ways, there is no need for that section if it's predetermined whether you're going to succeed at work or you're going to make friends or you're not.
2: Well, But nonetheless, you've got to incorporate the fact in there that behavior changes. Yeah. And it's not deterministic in the sense that like a Puritan neurobiologist would have said at Plymouth Rock or something. Right, right. But it's instead in a much more interesting, hopeful way. For example, um, conventional language that we would use, you sit there and you hear about the story of Hugh Thompson and you come out of there inspired. Right inspired, he did something amazing, right. inspired, there was nothing extraordinary about his upbringing, inspired, five minutes before that, he was no more amazing than you or me, he put his pants on one leg at a time, et cetera. Wow, maybe I could be more like Hugh Thompson. Mm-hmm. So we've just given sort of an English description of what it is to be inspired by somebody. What is that neurobiologically? The fact that a human can do what he did and the fact that you just heard about it might very well change something in your frontal cortex. Mm. And two and a half more neurons than were working this way this morning are now involved in a sense of efficacy Mm -hmm. and doing the right thing when it's the terrifying thing to do. When you're inspired, when you're demoralized, when you're deflated, when you're buoyed by something, those are as biological a phenomena as anything else, and they leave their traces. So the fact that we can learn about the nature of the world, and the process, by definition, that changes the nature of our brain and our subsequent behaviors, um, is totally compatible with us as deterministic biological organisms. It just tells you, go and study what the most efficacious ways are to like bring about good changes in those brains of ours.
0: Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. He's the author of Behave, the biology of humans at our best and worst. Robert, thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: We've got more on our website about the story of Hugh Thompson, what he did when he found himself at the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, and how he came to terms later with what had happened. That's all at innovationhub.org.